morning. <clears throat> Bible reading today is from 2 Kings, chapter 5. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? What does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So, please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. 
So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Thanks, Tom. This is the last of our Elijah and Elisha sermon series, and I've really enjoyed preaching it. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, And this story is a much-loved story of Naaman. Uh, Hands up if you love the story of Naaman. Uh, One or two. There you go. You didn't have to just stick your hand up just because I asked you. One person who loves or loved loves the story of Naaman is Jesus. Uh, and, uh, well, I, I, I assume he, he did. And the reason I say that is because right at the start of his ministry, he refers to it. If you look at Luke chapter 4, the, the first Old Testament story uh, stories that he refers to, there's two together, and there's an Elijah story and an Elisha story. And um, he's making the point, Jesus is making the point when he's talking to his listeners that um, Israel or Israelites have form with not accepting prophets in their own hometown. And uh, he says, uh, for example, look at Elijah. God used Elijah, who with the foreign uh, widow from Zarephath, and he used Elisha, who with the foreign military leader Naaman. Um, and uh, so Jesus make an interesting point there. And, um, and because of that, you know, we actually can see lots of connections between Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus and the ways they foreshadow his ministry. And in this story, we see it again. One of the obvious ways that Elisha foreshadows Jesus is because there's only two characters in the Bible that heal lepers. Um, that's Elisha and Jesus. Moses sort of does a thing with his own hand and there's a um, Miriam's healed... But that's sort of Moses watching more than anything else. So anyway, there's these connections. And Jesus could have used all kinds of stories in the opening of his ministry to talk about. But he uses these stories and this story of Naaman because it beautifully gets to the essence of what he's on about. Um, So anyway, once again, I've got three points for you for for what um, we learn from this passage. And the first point that we're going to look at is that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the second point is that um, 
God shows no favoritism. And the third point is that God's grace is continuous. So anyway, let's look at this. God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. So we're introduced to Naaman, who was commander of the army of Aram. Uh, Jesus called Naaman, Naaman, the, Naaman from Syria, Naaman of Syria, but two kings calls it Naaman of Aram, and that's because the land of Aram was eventually taken over by the Assyrians and it was called Syria in the thir- by the 3rd century BC. And just to get the context for this story, because, you know, when we dip into Old Testament stories, perhaps you're listening to this story for the first time and you can really be disoriented about what's going on, what, what's our context. Um, just a reminder, what, well, in this point in the 8th century BC we're in, the 12 tribes of Israel are spread over two kingdoms, um, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And there's, lo- and there's lots of war going on. They're fending off foreign nations. And um, the kings of Israel and Judah are most of the, mostly terrible. Um, they're unfaithful and um, promoting injustice. And, and uh, the Israelites and the, the Hebrew people across the land are mostly unfaithful and promoting injustice as well. And so God sends his prophets to um, bring them in line and to promote God's word and um, to speak God's word and to perform miracles. So what we've got to get clear is that in this context, Naaman is not a Hebrew person. He's not Jewish. He's a foreign military leader. He was liked by, loved by his king because he was successful, won lots of battles, and he was loved by the people, famous, a hero. And even it says in the passage that Yahweh showed favour to him, the Lord of Israel showed favour to him by allowing him to win battles. And we see in the story of Elijah and Elisha that God seemed to use foreign kings to um, make his plans unfold sometimes. And so Naaman's uh, being used that way by God. Nevertheless, let's not be confused. Naaman is leading the army who are fighting the Israelites. So when the Hebrew people are reading the story of Elisha and Naaman, they're reading about Naaman, their arch enemy. And there's one other thing about Naaman that we see, and that is that he has leprosy. And this is where I want to shock you a bit, trigger warning, and that is that I have leprosy. More than that, we at Mary Creek have a ministry to people with leprosy. And you're listening and going, what is he talking about? He's about to serve us communion. Are we all going to catch leprosy? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify. In the Bible, the word translated leprosy usually does not mean Hansen's disease, which is what you're thinking of. Um, as commonly found in parts of Southeast Asia and Africa and, and South America, even in, among some parts of the Aboriginal communities in Australia, and can be um, treated with med- medicine. Um, rather, the word in the leprosy in the Bible is a catch-all word for skin diseases of all kinds, um, common ones that many people in this room will have, including me, um, psoriasis, eczema, other kinds of skin diseases like that. And so this is why Naaman's able to serve in the army because you can't serve in the army if you've got Hansen's disease. That's probably going to hold you back. But a bit of psoriasis or a bit of eczema, you'll be able to serve in the army. 
Um, so if you are in this room and you've got a, some eczema or some psoriasis, lucky you're not born in Bible times because we would have been all in the leper colony together. Uh, but in the Bible, leprosy is seen as a, is seen as a, a, a terrible thing. You know, um, when Job contracted leprosy, uh, it said that his skin was the firstborn of death, which consumes his limbs. And it was often interpreted as a divine punishment for sin. But really what the Bible sees leprosy as is uh, evidence of the fallenness of the human condition and the vulnerability of the human condition. And so the, we see that despite Naaman's power and military success and popularity, he is vulnerable as anybody else and he wants to be healed. Now after being introduced to Naaman, we're introduced to um, a slave girl. A young Israelite slave girl. Two people who can't be more contrasting. Israel and Aram had been at war. And at some point, the Aramean military, probably under the instructions of Naaman, had abducted this girl and brought her into um, Naaman's house. And she ends up being Naaman's wife's slave. Naaman had all the power. She had none. And like all the great females that we've encountered in the story of Elijah and Elisha, we don't even know her name. Now, the girl finds out about Naaman's leprosy, and she has compassion on him. And she has the idea for him to go and find the great prophet in Syria, who we know is Elisha. His fame had spread through the land and people knew that he had power. And um, so she communicated this idea to Naaman's wife and she communicated to Naaman and Naaman thought it was a good idea and, and, and believed the slave girl and what she had said, which is a strange thing because what she's essentially suggesting to him is that he go into enemy territory and risk his life to find this prophet to get healed as you might have picked up by now, the stories of Elijah and Elisha are filled with godly women. Um, it's just a highly patriarchal context, but God is using females in the life of these prophets to do interesting things. We've had the widow of Zarephath who fed Elijah, the prophetic widow whose olive oil was multiplied by Elisha, the Shumanite woman who hosted Elisha, and now this Israelite slave girl. We don't know their names, but the Bible records them and demonstrates them to be um, favourable in God's eyes. And this is how it is in God's kingdom. We've got, on the one hand, Israel's rulers who were trying to kill the prophets, and then we've got these women who were trying to help the prophets. We've got Israel's rulers who are bowing down to false idols, and we've got these women who are crying out to the Lord We've got Israel's rulers making statements about how unfaithful they are to God, bowing down to idols. But these women are showing their faith in God. And this is exactly like what happens with Jesus. He's surrounded by these faithful women. It's these women who God chooses to work through and highlight for their strength, their strength of character and their faith. God uses them as agents of healing, restoration, and fulfillment. And it's these powerful men, these kings, 
who God judges and chooses to highlight for their lack of faith. And so you can see why Jesus loves the story of Naaman. Because the hero at the start of the story is a slave girl. And she's a female, she's a girl, she's a slave girl. Right down the bottom of the social ladder. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. If you want to find salvation in Jesus, what you need to do is to first realise that you need salvation in Jesus. Uh, you need to be vulnerable and humble. It requires you to realise that your intellect and your social status aren't enough to save you. When people are lying on their deathbed, it's the great equaliser. Whether you're a, you know, you've got two PhDs or if you're if you left school in year nine, you're in the same situation. If you're a politician or if you're a prisoner on your deathbed, you're in the same situation. These things that you have acquired in your life will not save you. And so you need someone greater, a true saviour. The irony of Naaman is that in God's economy, the slave Israelite girl is who is full of faith and wisdom and kindness, is in fact greater than the military leader, Naaman. And it's only because of his leprosy that he's brought down a few ranks, a few pegs on his, on his own sense of self, that he can start to realise his own need, his vulnerability and his need for God. So the story continues. Naaman listens to the slave girl and he goes to his master, the king of Aram, verse 4 to 6. He tells him what the girl says. King of Aram says, good idea. Why don't you go and find this prophet? And he arranges all this money um, to go with Elisha, ridiculous amounts of money. People have tried to uh, translate the, the, the shekels of gold and the silver to today's money. And one uh, Bible commentary, commentary said, it's about three quarters of a billion US dollars. You know, we're talking obscene amounts of money. Because uh, Naaman's thought is that, you know, if I, if I go into this enemy territory, I'm going to need some kind of gift to come with me to, so that people realise that I'm coming in peace. And when I meet the prophet, the great man prophet, I have to give him something. So these clothes and this money is going to be a good, good exchange for a healing. And this just reinforces Naaman's power. This is what rich people do. Rich people, when they're in trouble, they use their money to buy themselves out of their problem. Anyway, so Naaman gets eventually to the king of Israel and he brings the letter from the king of Aram and gives it to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel has a panic. He's like, what is going on here? And he assumes there's a conspiracy. And he was really very concerned. He says in verse 7, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. It would be as if Putin 
sent his military commander into Ukraine to Zelensky with a letter saying, can you look after the Russian military commander in your hospital system, please? Zelensky's going, who's going to get poisoned? There's something going to happen here. You know, he's you would be right to assume. If he could not heal this man, the king's thinking there's going to be a national incident. So again, look at the contrasts that we see here. There's the slave girl who has great faith. The king of Israel, no faith. The king of Aram has a little bit of faith. He's like, go, go, see what happens. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. Secondly, though, God shows no favoritism. James, the brother of Jesus, says in his, le in his letter, the second chapter, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. And usually we think of this as being about in your church not show favoritism to rich people over poor people, and that's true. But also in God's kingdom, it's about race and culture. Don't show favoritism to people of a certain race or a certain culture. The king of Israel was freaking out because Naaman was from the enemy nation. But Elisha, the prophet, who was full of wisdom, wasn't worried about that because he knew that God shows no favoritism. Elisha didn't understand what all the fuss was about and he said to the king of Israel, what are you worried about? Send Naaman to me. So Naaman went to Elisha's house and stood out the front. Now Naaman, Naaman thinks to himself, I'm a big, powerful, rich, important military leader. Um, I expect there to be this great fanfare when I arrive at this prophet's house. And he thinks that Elisha's going to come out dressed like a prophet, probably like Gandalf or something, and wave a wand, you know, and he'll be cured of leprosy. And he'll hand, Naaman will hand over the money and the ten suits or whatever, the clothes, whatever it is, and go home healed. But in fact, Elisha doesn't come out. He stays inside for whatever reason, and sends a messenger to the door. And the messenger sends what Elisha's instructions to Naaman, which is to go into the Jordan River seven times, dip himself in seven times, and his skin would be healed. Now, when I say to you the Jordan River, I know that probably if you've grown up in the church or read the Bible, you go, oh, the Jordan River. The Jordan River is an important river. I know that from the Bible. And it was for the Israelites too. It's where they crossed over to get into the promised land. But for Naaman, it didn't mean anything. He, it had no significance. And um, it would be like if I said to you, um, I don't know, if you're from Melbourne, dip yourself in the Swan River in Perth. What's the Swan River? We don't care about the Swan River in Melbourne. We're from Melbourne. We care about the Yarra River. You know, it, it meant nothing to Naaman, this Jordan River. And he's like... We've got, I've got my own rivers. I've got the river of Abana. I've got the river, rivers of Farpa in Damascus. They're much better. Uh, this whole washing myself in the river, Jordan thing, seems a bit ridiculous. I could have stayed at home and done that. Have I come all this way with all this money to do that? So Naaman goes off in a rage. And Naaman's servants get a bit frustrated because they've come all this way with him 
and they're thinking Naaman's being a bit ridiculous here, being a bit precious. He wasn't thinking straight, they said, in verse 13. So they say to him, the servants get around Naaman, they say to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have done it? Would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? In other words, this is a simple thing. You just have to go in the river seven times, you're going to be cleaned, just do it. And often with God, we expect things to be much more complicated than they need to be. And so once again, we see Naaman, a change come over him. And he humbles himself and he listens to his servants. He has all this power, they have no power, and yet he listens to them, just like he listened to the slave girl. We've already established that God uses weak people to shame the strong. And here it's happening again. And hundreds of years later, the Apostle Peter will tell Christian slaves, he says, you know, even though you're a slave, you can still do the ministry of Jesus in your, in your awful position as a slave. You can have amazing influence over even oppressive masters. This is how you can die to sin and live for righteousness. God is doing amazing things here to Naaman through Elisha, through the slaves, through the slave girl. He's doing amazing things in this foreigner military leader's life. For the last two years, um, Joe and I have been doing tours of high schools in the inner north of Melbourne. And without fail, on the tour, the principal or the vice principal doing the tour will do a little speech about diversity. And they'll say, our school is pro-diversity, as if that's an original idea. And um, they'll say, you know, we embrace all people of all cultures, all sexualities, all genders, neurodiverse people, everyone. We embrace everyone. And, and you know, you have to almost just count to ten. And I, I always secretly in my little corner stand there and go, oh, that's good. And I want to stick my hand up and say, great, can we start a Christian mustard, Christian lunchtime group and just to see what the reaction is of the, the principal? I haven't done that yet. But this idea of um, diversity is actually essentially a Christian idea. Um, it's, it's actually essentially a Christian idea, and we know this. Being pro-diversity, is a, it's a moral value that's come out of Christianity because we don't see it in countries and, and cultures that don't have a Christian background. The God of the Bible is clear, clearly pro-diversity. James says, show no, diverse, uh, no, show no favoritism. And the Apostle Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The book of Romans is about God his big plan to bring Jews and Gentiles together and form one new community. If we look in the picture of heaven that John sees in Revelation, it's all the tribes, the nations and the languages worshipping together in all their diversity. The author Rebecca McLaughlin, McLaughlin writes in her book, The Secular Creed, that she says campaigns like Black Lives Matter are essentially singing a Jesus song. And so Christians should get behind it. She points out that the church across the world, the body of Christ, is multi-ethnic. And so she writes, 
When we refuse fellowship across racial and cultural difference, we're tearing Jesus' beautiful body apart. The God of the Bible wants justice for all people, regardless of their skin colour or their race. And this story of Naaman demonstrates this core principle of the good news of the kingdom, which is why I think Jesus loved the story. It's Naaman's slaves who speak wisdom to Naaman, and Naaman, a Gentile foreigner, responds in faith to the Lord God of Israel. And he's fully healed. He goes into the water somehow seven times. He goes for seven swims or whatever happens. And his flesh is healed and his skin is like a young boy. And Naaman returned to Elisha and declares faith in the Lord. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And the idea that God would heal a foreigner like this was so outrageous to Jesus' listeners when Jesus told that story that what they wanted to do is take him to the side of the cliff, it says, and throw him off the cliff. That's what you call cancel culture. Salvation is shocking. The most unlikely people are rescued by God. Salvation is about God's grace meeting our weakness. And we see that in Naaman coming to faith. So it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your status or lack of status is or your culture. God loves you and he wants to turn your life around. He wants you to put your faith in him. The last point from this Elisha story is that God's grace is continuous. God shows his grace to us when we come to faith in him. He provides us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's an undeserved gift. But this grace continues throughout our whole life, and that's really important. Because as you get older and you live as a Christian, you realise that life gets complicated and, diff- and, and you start to wonder if you're living the right way and you, you, you start to realise all the mistakes you're making and you need God's grace. And we need to trust that God's grace is continuous throughout our whole life. And we see that here with Naaman. As soon as he confesses faith in the God of Israel, he tried to give the riches of money that he had to Elisha. And Elisha says, I don't need your money, mate. So Naaman says in verse 17, okay, you don't need my money. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. See, what had happened was, initially, Naaman didn't care much about the Jordan River. Now, he's converted, and he really loves the land and the Jordan River. And so he wants to take a piece of earth with him home. Because he thinks that, how am I going to continue worshipping the God of Israel in Aram? I know, I'll take some Israel with me. In our culture, we place little significance in land. We have our country and our home. And perhaps we have special places we like to go to. But in, in, for most people, I'm assuming in this room, land doesn't mean as much as it does for other people in the world. The closest thing we see to that in our setting is indigenous cultures in Australia. Land is much more important to them. Um, spirituality, identity, it's all tied up with land. And this is true for Hebrew people as well. And probably true for Naaman's people as well. 
And in the Bible, we, we see that um, while, while land is important to a certain extent, it's not, God is not restricted to land, is he? Um, even when the temple is built and the prophets say God doesn't live in there like a house, like he's spirit, he's everywhere he wants to be. And when Jesus comes, he sends the disciples out into the whole world with the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, Naaman wants to bring two meals worth of soil back to Aram so he can build a little Israel for himself. And Elisha doesn't stop him. Naaman has a lot to learn, but that's okay. Elisha shows grace. Whatever you need, Naaman, to help you in your relationship with Yahweh, you do it. To help you in your worship of Yahweh. If you need to do that, you do it. And then Naaman has another crazy idea. It's a request. And he says in verse 18, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. See, how's he going to be able to be the commander of the army and be in this other foreign kingdom where they have to bow down to Rimon? Um, Naaman knows this is going to be complicated. And you would assume at this point, Elisha hears this and would preach a sermon on the Ten Commandments and say, the second commandment says, thou shalt not bow down to idols. But Elisha doesn't do that. Elisha knows that life is complex and that God is working in his grace in Naaman's life. So Elisha says, verse 19, go in peace. And that's where the story ends. Now there is an extra bit, the coda, which I'm not going to unpack, about Gehazi, um, Naaman's, uh, Elisha's servant. And all that he's going to show you is just how outrageous this whole story was. God showing grace to this foreign military leader. The story of Naaman was loved by Jesus and by many people because it's an illustration of the gospel. It's a story of God's grace meeting our weakness. It's a transcultural story about God using insignificant people to minister to unlikely foreigners, bringing healing and salvation. So in the words of Elisha, Go in peace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your grace in the life of Elisha and for the fact that you used that slave girl um, to speak wisdom and God's truth to bring him to healing. Thank you that this is the way you always work. This is the way you're working in us right now. We pray that we will know your grace in our life. Amen.